0: New York City is starting to look a lot like the wild, wild west. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. Violence returned to New York City this summer with a vengeance. According to the NYPD, shooting incidents and deaths doubled from the year before. In August, during one 72-hour period, 49 people were shot in the city. Experts point to various factors for this. With us today to talk about this and what one group is doing to curb the violence, are David Kaba, who works at Good Shepherd Services, where he is Senior Program Director for BRAG, which stands for Bronx Rises Against Gun Violence, and Eric Markitan, Trauma Injury Prevention Specialist at SBH Health System. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Steve.
0: David, let me start with you. Why don't you give me a short definition of what BRAG is and the work it does in the Bronx?
2: Sure. As you mentioned, BRAG is a program of Good Shepherd Services. And focus of BRAG is to implement the Cure Violence model in impacted communities. So we do this work in the 46th Precinct with our BRAG West program. It's in the west part of the Bronx. We do this work. In the 47th precinct in Bragg North, that's the north part of the Bronx, and we do this in the 52nd precinct in Bragg Northwest, the northwest part of the Bronx. And the the model is basically designed to do three things. One is to go to the most impacted area of these three precincts to mediate conflicts on the spot, to identify high-risk youth, bring them into the program, move them in the right direction, away from violence and towards peaceful conflict resolution and healthy living and lifestyles. And the third one is to mobilize the community to reject this violence because violence has become a norm and it's actually abnormal. And we use the Cure Violence public health approach whereby violence spreads, clusters, and replicates itself. And that's basically the, the model, utilizing credible message from these very same neighborhoods who used to be these young people involved in high-risk activities.
0: Right, again, David, as I understand it, the Cure Violence model is sort of the same model used for disease uh, containment and prevention, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Gary Sluck, an epidemiologist out of Chicago, after spending 10 years in the Congo and Africa fighting diseases like Ebola and AIDS, he returned home to Chicago to an epidemic of homicides and shootings. He came across a map with all the shootings. Uh, red dotted all over it. it. looked like a virus map to him. He decided to start to study it, realized that it was behaving just like a contagion. And from that point on, he created the cure violence model using credible messengers as the cure. And and again, the Bragg system
0: is not just in New York. It's, it's around the country, right?
2: Yes. In fact, when Dr. Sluckin created the first one, he went to the worst part of Chicago. The success rate was somewhere near 66%. They asked him to do it again because they thought it was a fluke. Next thing you know, there were 16 sites in Chicago. Then it spread nationally, it ended up in Oakland, New Orleans, Texas, um, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York City. But it's also now global. So Cure Violence is now Cure Violence Global. So you also find it in Honduras, which is you know the murder capital of the planet. You also find it in Kingston, Jamaica, in uh, Puerto Rico, and England, it's a, it's a global, successful, evidence-based model now.
0: So, Eric, how does uh, SBH work with Bragg? What's the history here?
1: So, the history of Bragg at SBH, and I have to say this as a new entity, which essentially is Bragg ampersand SBH, as it would be typed out and as it would be appearing on a banner or on a t-shirt or by members of the team. This essentially is a collaboration that is absolutely remarkable for us to have been connected with them. And essentially it happened through happenstance. There had been an anniversary shooting which led them to our emergency department's ambulance bay about five years ago. And they were there doing the work that Cure Violence sends them out to do, which is shadowing and on-the-spot mediations and constructive shadowing and interventions and we learned a little bit about what they were doing then and from there they began tabling with us and in that community tabling and health fairs and through the relationship that I've built with David and with the team we came to learn and I came to learn about what Cure Violence is as a model and what they're doing specifically as a community group that's um, practicing the, the model.
0: Is it mostly gang members that are consulting with BRAG members, or is it more of a general population of, of shooting victims? Yes.
1: Yeah. So the participants of care that Bragg engages with and who we see as patients are largely involved in gang activity, actively members of gangs, incidentally involved with gang members, members of street crews that consider themselves gangs. But ultimately, this is Indivi- these are individuals with a lot of time, who are not well engaged in employment in a career path, and for them it's essentially being recruited uh, at times. So you know, we see and and spend a lot of time with them and learn about what they're doing. And I think clearly a majority of them are involved at, at that level. Although I have to say that it's not all just criminally. And in fact, one. Exclusion criteria is if they're actively engaged with law enforcement. Bragg does not do their work. So all of that has to be cleared out. And this could be something as subtle as being, quote, on papers. And on papers is essentially you're on probation and or parole. And part of what caused you to be injured um, in association with individuals might lead to you being violated and essentially you now re-engage with the criminal justice system. And for that, Bragg has to—and we step back and let that run its course, and then we'll, we'll connect with them afterwards.
0: Why do you think the program has worked so effectively over the, over the last few years?
1: Well, sort of viewing this as a public health crisis, and, and that's truly what it is. I think that, you know, to rewind the tape to COVID and what happened prior to COVID, looking at our specific— adult level two trauma center numbers here at SBH, and as a member of the Department of Emergency Medicine, I'm well engaged as an injury prevention specialist and coordinator of the programs, we saw between June 19 and June 20, uh, year over year, a 500% increase in gunshot wounds. And this is separate from the term gas, and what gas is is gunshots, assaults, and stabbings. That's essentially the the totality of who we want to reach with 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 this program but specifically the shooting incidents that occurred citywide, um, we were again, like COVID, a hotspot of a hotspot. And um, for that, um, we really needed to to, uh, scale up our program and continue to do what we're doing, which is our inpatient enrollment, and then pivot to what we were just beginning to do before COVID, which is specifically capturing patients who are treat and release, who are through our EDs pretty quickly, um, and capture them and engage with them in that golden hour and make sure that we're able to clinically connect with them before they're, they're literally out the door. And that's uh, something that I think that we, we are achieving with BRAC at this time with our um, ER-based hospital responder.
0: Without violating anyone's uh, privacy or confidentiality, is there a story, or anecdotally, that you can tell us about somebody who's been um, effectively sure. impacted by the program?
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely, Steve. I'll, I'll point to two. Um, one as an inpatient success and one as a, as a trauma in the ED success. So the inpatient success was someone who traditionally you would consider on a spreadsheet to be someone who we didn't capture. And that is that we did the ask, which is a member of the clinical staff getting permission by them for the pitch which is the HR to come in and do the work and he agreed to the ask he agreed to the pitch and essentially he was like okay and we tried again and made sure that the electronic connections were there and the communication was there and then when he was discharged there was a fallout and the fallout was he kind of fell off the map and you know we track this and we also have the ability to do some sort of data collection that's more sort of specific and free texting. And so we, we noted all of this. Fast forward a few months, he came to the BRAG headquarters and said that I'm ready to re-engage. I want, I want to be a part of the program. And not only that, but he was carrying. So he came in with a gun. Wow, um, he was, you know, pretty much, you know, keeping everything at bay and carrying it for protection. And, you know, they have procedures to deal with this. But that's a success. So on paper, you might look at this at the end of a month and say that's someone who we weren't able to engage with as a participant of care. But ultimately, the long game is we, we are reaching them. Now, in the ED, this is even a, a more successful, kind of right at, at the point of entry case. This was a 15-year-old. And this was his third time in our emergency department as a trauma code. And that's the highest level of, of activation for our trauma team. Um, he was very lucky each time. But essentially, he was dodging bullets, knives, and being beat up. And his mom was there, and she had been kind of told a tale that wasn't really reflecting the reality. And we spent some time with him. The detective spent some time with him, realizing that there was no criminality. They left, and we were able to continue to engage with him. Our HR came in, and we did the warm handoff. And essentially, that is someone who we followed up with. He's continued to be in the program. He's gotten wraparound services, and that's exactly who we need. We really want him to to grab these young men and and some women at that young age because the—and I said this very clearly to him. I said, you know, the next time you're here, you may be a trauma code that essentially is someone who may not, you know, survive this event. And I think that we reached him, and that is truly the, the importance of being in the emergency department.
0: I guess the bottom line is that there are mean streets out here, and that this is a tough neighborhood, and even somebody or a parent who is trying to uh, help their child live the straight and narrow life gets in the way
1: absolutely. Uh, I read down these mean streets when I was in college uh, by Peary Thomas and growing up in the Bronx actually I've learned a lot of of what you know is a need for teams to sometimes be involved. And and when I mean by teams, I mean it could be a family, extended family, a coach, a teacher, a physician, a social worker, someone to take an interest. And for Bragg's outreach worker to fill that spot, for the violence interrupter to fill that spot, these are voids that they're dropping in with. And they're credible, and they're believable, and they've experienced things in their life that has have led them to this career path for them, which for them it's very, very rewarding. And I think that that is truly what makes cure violence work.
0: Now, David, what is the kind of training and the backgrounds of your team members?
2: Great question. So sometimes when you uh, hear the term credible messenger, the thought is that these are, you know, individuals who aren't trained and professional in what they do. And, you know, we just select them from the community and just put them to work. However, that is uh, far from the case. So uh, in the Cure Violence work that was done, there are numerous trainings. Before you even come on board to the, the BRAG team or any Cure Violence program in the New York City and New York State, you go through a rigorous uh, background check. traditional and non-traditional so traditional can mean fingerprints and references but the non-traditional one is where we do what we call street checks, street background checks for example um, an individual may be interviewed and go through some of the process and then at some point we will tell them okay we need you to meet us on this particular street corner at this time of night And we need for you to walk up and down with us in what we call our catchment area, which is basically the hot zone, the most impacted area in terms of gun violence in that particular precinct. And we watch and see how the neighborhood reacts, how the community treats this individual. Is it uh, the type of thing where they spoken to with respect, with uh, positive regard? Is it the opposite of that? If we happen to turn down one particular street and the individual pauses and says, okay, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm good. You know, at that point we'll say, no, well, we, we have to walk down the street. This is one of the blocks that we, you know, conduct our work. And they say, no, no, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm satisfied for now. And the question becomes a safety issue. You know, there's something going on between this individual and this particular block. And so the interview kind of ends and they don't complete the, um, the interview process. The interview also involves a hiring panel. So Eric Marguitan, who's on this um, interview with me on this podcast with me, he's part of a hiring panel. So the hiring panel includes members of the community, stakeholders, of the Bragg team, the Department of Health, the Mayor's Office of Justice. They're all on, on these panels, including members of you know the elected offices, community boards, precinct councils, the bodega owner, the clergy, parents, you name it, right? And they're a part of it because we're basically identifying individuals from that very community, and they remember them when they were young growing up, and they want to make a determination as to have they really turned their lives around, right? Are they really pro-healthy living, right? Anti-gun violence, anti-violence in general. Once they surpass all of these interview steps, the hiring panels, Then they come on board. They're still not allowed to conduct any of this work until they go away for training. So we send them away for training weeks at a time. So one particular week, they'll go away for VERT training. Vert is V-I-R-T, stands for Violence Interruption and Reduction Training. We'll send them away for PIM, P-I-M, Program Implementation and Management. And importantly to this particular podcast with our Braga SBH initiative is hospital response. So they go away and learn hospital response. And that's the process by which they learn all the different facets of how you respond to a shooting, when the individual is taken to the trauma hospital, how you deal with the emergency medicine team, how you deal with the trauma team, how you deal in the waiting area with the families and the friends, how do you connect with the nurses and social workers, um, all the way through the process of, let's say, the emergency room to being admitted into one of the floors in the hospital, how you work with that patient what victim services look like, if law enforcement involved, it's pretty extensive. And so that's just the Cure Violence training they go through. We we have also a host of trainings at um, Good Shepherd Services that include bias awareness training, trauma-informed practices, safety circles, restorative justice. But I'll, I'll end with this part in terms of the question, they also go through additional training at SBH, such as Stop the Bleed, Standard First Aid, AED, CPR. So when we're out there canvassing that community, which is a minimum of 60 hours a month. We usually average about 80, maybe more than that. You encounter violent situations and so you need to know how to you know, apply a tourniquet. You need to know how to conduct Standard First Aid. You need to know how to clear the area, so on and so forth. So this is very professional, very specific. And we started out in Bragg with just one team of five members. Now we have three teams. And we're at about 30-plus staff members. And we're looking to expand in the next couple of months our hospital response at BRAG SPH.
0: Right. David, let's get back to the, the introduction where we talked about the fact that the numbers have doubled over the summer where we had uh, 49 people shot over a three day period. Why is that? What's the reason for this all of a sudden where New York City is becoming, like I said, the wild, wild west suddenly?
2: So normally the summer is peak season, comes to uh, shooting data. The major reason behind that is the weather's warm This is New York City, right? So we have winter and, you know, and, you know, we have these few months where the weather's warm and there's a lot of activity. That's one. Another one is schools out. So those 16 to 25-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, if they're not engaged in some youth employment, something to that effect, they're basically hanging out in the streets, right? A lot of unengaged activity. And for us, I brag one thing that, you know, and studying the data and reviewing his historical information, I, I pinpointed that right after Memorial Day, up until Labor Day, that's the time frame by which we have to make sure that our strategies match up with what we're seeing in that time frame. And so we work actually later. Yeah, during the summer, than we do in the winter months. And so you'll find us working one to nine on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Don't work on Sundays and Mondays because there's not a lot of um, high risk activity going on on Sundays and Mondays. We start Tuesday and Wednesday, one to nine. Why one o'clock? They don't wake up early. They pretty much get up in the afternoon, and by the time they get outside, we're talking about any time between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., and then things get rolling. So then here comes Thursday and Friday, and now we're going towards the end of the week, right? So everybody's waiting for Friday, you know, payday, party time, house parties, gatherings, you name it. Now they even have dubbed Thursday, Friday Eve, right? And so now we're working on Thursdays from 4 p.m. to midnight. And then Saturday is obviously, you know, Saturday night fever, right? Clubs open, things going on, dice games, you know, you name it. And so on Saturdays we work from six PM to two AM, right? And so these are the strategies that we put in place to make sure that we match up with what's going on. But in addition to that, we're also on a twenty four hour call. In other words, we can end your shift, our work is done, and then all of a sudden we get information that a shooting took place and we have to, you know, put our apparel back on our brag gear and head back out, you know, to handle uh, the shooting that just took place to make sure no retaliation takes place, and that we make we offer the services to the victim or victims, when you look at what has always been the case in the Bronx in terms of and when I say always, I'm talking about like for decades where schools aren't as good as they should be mental uh, health isn't where it should be housing isn't where it should be unemployment rates are super high and all the other social factors right that has always been there now you go and you include a pandemic coronavirus that with it along with sicknesses and unfortunately mortality in the wrong direction Add to that quarantine. Add to that the time timing of which uh, didn't help whatsoever. By that I mean, you know, in March is when it really hit us, and then here we got April and May, and we're moving from spring into summer. So now you're basically, you know, normally spring people start to come out, and then now they can't. They got to stay home. They isolated. Isolation takes place, and you have because of that a spike in domestic violence, a spike in substance abuse and alcoholism, you name it, mental health issues, suicide. And then you have the George Floyd issue. And it's on video for the world to see over and over again. And then, of course, you have the Breonna Taylor and the Amont Arbery, right? And so you have social justice unrest. And then all of a sudden, you start posing a question of economics, right? So already the unemployment rate was horrendous, but guess what? Now there's no no money coming into the city. Tax is not there. And all of a sudden a budget crisis hits and an announcement is made that some of youth employment is going to get cut. And these young people, they pay attention. They see what's happening, what's being said, so on and so forth. And now you're talking about like 35,000, you know, youth and families affected, you know, maybe more because no summer youth employment. And then you come up with the hashtag defund the police. So what impact does that have on a young person when they hear defund the police, right? And you have peaceful protests, but along with those peaceful protests, you have riots, riots that I can tell you, I have firsthand seen that these are individuals that aren't even from our communities that are coming in and destroying our communities, right? Our shopping districts and so on and so forth. So. Young people see that and they translate that. They define that as, oh, we can basically, you know, it's a free-for-all, right? Now we can openly, overtly, you know, defy law enforcement, so on and so forth. But add to that the fact that, you know, now we don't have income. My father, my mother lost their job. You know, things were bad already to begin with. Things made things even worse, right? We have to get out there and do what we can to put food on the table and pay the rent. Yeah, I guess
0: it's just a perfect storm of events. And, and yet I always thought that New York State, New York City had fairly strong gun control laws compared to I don't know, Pennsylvania or the, the South or whatever. But I guess guns are still pretty easy to get, right?
2: See, I'm glad you brought that up because in, in a lot of the panels that I've been on and, and media interviews and other electives and prominent officials, my conversation turns towards the proliferation of guns in New York City. From my research, we only have one gun manufacturer in New York, and it's in sub-state, it's right? It's not even in New York City. So where exactly are these guns coming from? And that's easy. The, the iron pipeline is one. So when you look at I-95 that goes all the way to South Beach and comes all the way up to New York City, it goes through all these states that have very relaxed gun laws, that's where they're coming from. There's also I-80, which is Ohio, coming from Ohio from that direction, coming this direction. So if I know this information and you know this information and the general public and community knows this, then clearly those officials that are in charge of putting a stop to this know this as well. So I have heard feedback such as, well, it's a federal issue. It's not. Uh, a local issue a state issue and yes we do have some of the most powerful gun laws in the country but at the end of the day they're still coming in and we know where they're coming in so how about conducting some sort of joint effort to put a stop to this similar to the the joint effort on terrorism right there's no reason why a task force can't be convened to put a stop to this uh
0: eric let me ask you the last question Where does this collaboration go between Bragg and SBH over the next year, five years, 10 years, what have you?
1: Yeah, great question. So there's been a lot of city attention um, to the HVIP, which is the Hospital-Based Violence Interruption Program, of which we are one of the five core hospitals that are doing it. And I think that there's a realization as we look at criminal justice reform and some of the legislation that, that has been passed in Albany that the pendulum moves. But I think that it's always been in a place where we need to have solutions to criminal justice issues and to to issues of violence that are out of the box. And to approach it clinically and to use this programming, we're seeing success. So I think what we'd like to do is to build out our presence in the emergency department. We're currently there Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays with our hospital responder during the peak hours. Ideally, they're there every evening and, and perhaps for more hours. Uh, we may be getting funding for a second HR through the BRAG pipeline, and to continue to build out and do our enrollments. There's no reason why we shouldn't have a BRAG member that can be at, at the clinics when they're returning for their clinical appointments, or if a pediatrician is to find that someone is at risk and have the pediatrician do an activation. So I think there's a lot of room for us to continue to think outside of the box, to bring them clinical and wraparound services that SBH does such a great job with for pediatric and adolescent medicine. And having a very strong Department of Emergency Medicine led by a really remarkable team that I've been with through COVID and now we're sort of seeing this through the traumas and the shootings, I think that we're in a perfect place to respond to the need.
0: I want to thank you, David Kaba of Bragg and Eric Markatan of SBH Health System, both for your good work and for joining us today on SBH Bronx Health Talk. For more information on services available at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us. Until next time.